Friends, we are indeed in Isaiah 37. We're taking a break from Acts and going to this beautiful paragraph in the prophets as kind of a birthday sermon. This is a chance for us as a church to reorient ourselves around who we are in Christ and what it means to draw our strength and our nourishment from him and to bear the kind of fruit that is pleasing to him. And we find that in this beautiful paragraph in a very unlikely place in Isaiah chapter 37. So church, listen as I read for us from Isaiah 37, beginning in verse 30. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Lord, if you have zeal, and if you are indeed the Lord of hosts, then you have all resolve and passion, and you have all resources with creation itself at your disposal to do exactly what you want to do in this church body, among these believers, and among all the bodies of Christ who name the name of the Lord Jesus today, this Sabbath day, a day of celebration. Have your way in this community and in the capital C church and be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I know it's a little whiplash to be in the New Testament, to be going through the book of Acts, and then to jump back into Isaiah. And so I just want to set the context a little bit for us in this passage. The year is 681 BC, and we're in the southern kingdom of Judah. So there was a time that Israel was one nation, indivisible, under God, with liberty and justice for all, but The people of Israel rebelled against God and they split into two nations. The northern kingdom was Israel, excuse me, the southern kingdom was Judah. And at this time, there is a world superpower, Assyria, and they have come and they have conquered the northern kingdom. They've taken Israel into exile and all we have is Judah left in the south. Well, Sennacherib is the king of Assyria, excuse me, And his seat of power is in Nineveh, which is in modern-day Mosul, Iraq. And he has now conquered several cities in Judah. And he has now come to the city gates, and he's at Jerusalem, and he is threatening to take that city as well. Now, I know this is a really odd thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that is the Assyrian invasion of Judah will always hold a special place in my heart. There's a warm spot in my heart for this historical event. And as harrowing it as it is, I'll tell you why. And that's because the, the historical reliability, the evidence of this event came to me at a very vulnerable time in my Christian life. 
I was uh, finishing my degree at CIU and I was doing my mission internship overseas in London and I was working in a Muslim neighborhood and I was witnessing and I was spending my time away from home, away from Julie who I wanted to marry and engaged in these intense apologetic debates with other religions and it sorely tested my faith. I was sorely tested in that summer and I began to ask questions about the Bible and about my faith. Is this true? Is this real? Is it believable? Is it verifiable? And I began to take every day off I had to go to the British Museum, which is a magical place. I saw a diagram online that compared the British to an ant colony. Have you seen this? where there's a lot of similarities, both have a strong affection for their queen and both love crumbly pastries and both take things from other places and bring them back to their colony. And the British Museum is full of archaeological evidence for the historical reliability of the Bible. You can spend, and I've done it, an entire summer just in the British Museum, just on your day off, and not exhaust the places, the evidence, the artifacts that are in that museum that verify what we know in the Bible to be true. Isn't that amazing? But chiefly, in that museum, there is this prism. It's a structure that was made by Sennacherib, the king we're talking about here in Assyria, to devote to all his triumphs and all his victories. And on that prism, you can read what we have just read, that Sennacherib came to Israel, conquered the northern kingdom, came to Judah, took all of her cities, and came right up to the gates of Jerusalem, And we know from the Bible he never got in because God wrought a terrific victory. Sennacherib kind of leaves that part out of his history. But he says, I caged Hezekiah like a bird in a cage and then I left. That's there. That's here. We knew it before we found that prism. The Bible is historically reliable and accurate. And that bolstered my faith when I saw it. So this whole scene, it just has a warm place in my heart because we didn't know it was true if we only had the Bible, but now we know historically it is absolutely true just as the Bible has said. Well, in the midst of that chaos, as all that is unfolding, God shows up in his great mercy and before he brings victory, he drops a metaphor on his people that describes us as a tree with roots and with fruit. There's something so pleasing about the image of a healthy tree. I mean, just imagine like a childhood tree or imagine a tree in your yard that you enjoy looking at. You just, you see a tree in healthy soil and a strong trunk and big branches and leaves and fruit and it is absolutely pleasing to the senses and it's no wonder the Bible comes back to it again and again and again and again to say, believer church, you are like a tree, you're like a vine, You're like a stalk of grain that is growing up in God's providence and bearing good and lush fruit for his glory. 
in verse 21, the Lord has plans to grow us as the church in two directions. Number one, we are going to take root downward. And number two, we are going to bear fruit upward. So let's think about each of those from verse 31. We're gonna take root downward. Now, I remember as a kid, like probably many of you, I love trees, I love climbing in trees, I loved being around trees, building forts in trees. And I remember hearing for the first time that a tree is more than just everything you see above the ground, right? There's something under the ground. And I think the first way I heard it was that a tree is its mirror image underground. Like you have a, a, a trunk and then branches and that's the same thing you have underground with the root system. And I thought that was incredible. And it's an urban legend, it's not true. But the elements are true to that. Just like a tree has a trunk, it also has a tap root that goes deep into the ground. In fact, they found a tree with a taproot 400 feet into the ground. And then it has roots that grow out from there. And I heard somewhere that it goes up to the drip line of the tree as far as the branches go. That's how far the roots go. But actually, sometimes they're double that. Sometimes they can be up to eight times that amount. Anybody who has ever tried to pave anything can tell you that trees have reach. They grow roots out far and wide. And roots are all about supporting the tree and securing nutrients. That's true of tree roots and that's true of Christian roots. Before we explore each of those, Christian, I want you to hear this morning that God is for you. In the gospel God is for you. And when he designs the structure of your spiritual life, he does so with attention to your support and to your nutrients. He does it with a design to your surviving and he does it with a design towards your thriving. Those are your gifts in your rootedness with Christ. So number one, speaking of the roots, roots support the tree. They are all about surviving. Everybody knows that a blown down tree is a dead tree. If the roots can't hold the tree against the storms that come and come what may and it falls over, it's gonna be a dead tree. A blown down tree is a dead tree. So the roots are critical to its survival. You've got this eerie repetition in our passage about a surviving remnant. Did you guys see that in the text? Look at verse 31. It says, quote, a surviving remnant. And then it repeats it in verse 32. It says, a remnant, a band of survivors. Now, in Isaiah, in the aftermath of Assyrian carnage, we certainly take that to be physical surviving, as in some of you will die when judgment comes, but some of you will physically survive. You will be spared the sword and you will live. But especially in Isaiah, this refers chiefly to spiritual surviving, as in some of you will live, but then a few of you will be alive towards God. This is not just your physical breathing, your physical living. We're talking about spiritual survival. Now, church, I say this with deep and with serious grief 
that not all who claim Christ in the past still call on Christ today. You know that. You can think of friends who used to name Christ and don't name him today. Not everybody who was baptized into his death still today walk in the light of his resurrection. Not all who have joined the church, not all who have fellowshiped with us, not all who have taken the Lord's Supper together with us in this body are still following Jesus today. They had prayed the prayer, they had walked the aisle, they had raised the hands, they had repeated after the pastor, but they now have come to a point in their life that they would no longer claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior and they want nothing to do with his church. You know these friends, these dear ones, and you grieve for them. This journey away from Jesus, sometimes it starts with our doubts, like I described earlier, questions about the Bible and its reliability and its historicity. Sometimes it starts with a disappointment with God. I thought he was gonna show up and do this thing in my life and he didn't do this thing and so I began to have questions about him. Or sometimes it could start with sin that I find myself happier in this place than I do living and breathing and serving God but whichever tributary of resistance that journey began, it has now flowed into that great and awful river of apostasy that flows away from God, away from his eternal life, and into the darkness. That's a sad and a horrifying thing. We don't take that lightly, but if you are here this morning, and you are leaning on Christ as your hope in life, Isaiah says you are a survivor. By God's grace, you are a surviving remnant. None of us can pat ourselves on the back for that. All of that is God's doing. But if you know Jesus today, if you lean on Jesus today, the Bible says you are a survivor. Now you're here, but you might just be barely here. Like you might have limped into the space this morning and you may have come full of doubts and questions, still wondering if this could possibly be true. You may have hidden sins that you have yet to confess. You may have fallen back into the addiction that you swore to God you would never do again. You may have spent the entire car ride to church this morning belittling your spouse or your friend or your kids, but you are here in this place this morning, naming the name of Christ, and that is God in you. That is the gift of union with Christ. Because he has joined himself to you, your taproot runs deep, and you are a survivor. Praise God. Praise God. Another day in his kingdom, praise God. So the roots here, they support us and they're all about surviving. But secondly, they're more than that. Roots secure nutrients. They're all about thriving. So 
to survive as a Christian and still name the name of Christ and to be counted among the remnant, that would be a mercy in and of itself. But to say that we could thrive as a Christian would be a grace upon grace. Now, I want you to hear the words of Jeremiah 17 that describes a believer. And it's actually gonna sound a lot like Psalm 1 that we, had, that we heard in our scripture reading. And I dare you not to long for this description for your very soul. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and does not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Jeremiah 17, 8, who doesn't want that for their soul. Contrast that to the wicked. Job 18, 16, his roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. Isaiah 5, 24, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away like the dust. So the righteous don't just survive. There's actually a world in which the righteous can thrive in their union with Christ. I think that's what Colossians 2 is talking about when it talks about this union and it uses root language, Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. A saint who is rooted in Christ with happy thankfulness in our hearts regardless of the circumstances, that's a saint that's thriving. That's a saint I want to be around. That's a saint I want to spend time with. That's a saint I want to learn from. That is a grace upon grace. And this is God's design for you as the surviving remnant. He is for healthy roots that grow downward close to water, surviving and thriving. That's his gift to you, believer in Christ. And I want you to see as we talk about the roots that the roots comes before the fruit, right? I didn't come up with that. That's here in Isaiah. We're talking about the root going downward before we have said a single thing about the fruit that's gonna be born upward. I know as a church body, as we talk about the vision of Colaprez, we talk about disciples united with Christ and we hope for and long for good fruit that is gonna be born in worship and community and outreach. We long for those things. We celebrate those things. We wanna see those things in this church body. But if those things become aims and ends in themselves that aren't deeply connected to and flowing from the root that is Christ. They are meaningless. God is not the least bit interested in rootless worship or rootless community or rootless outreach. He's not interested in bodies that are just going through the motion, performing the things that we think he wants to see and that we'll get credit for in front of other people if our heart and our soul is not in it, connected to Christ. Do you know that? He's not so desperate to fill this room on a Sunday morning with people singing that he'll take just anybody regardless of their heart posture towards him. 
He's not so greedy for Christian community and hospitality and serving each other that he'll take any kind of attitude to begrudgingly love and sacrifice for another person. He's not so anxious for outreach that he'll settle for Christians who will go out from this place and do ministry and show up to events out of a sense of guilt to please him. I mean, if it were up to me, I'd be thinking the task is so big and the church is so small and she's so under-resourced that we will take all the help we can get. Beggars can't be choosers. Show up any way, shape, or form and we will use you and we will try to produce something for the Lord. And Jesus is like, slow down, Martha. There's one thing here that's important and that is your roots deep in the presence of Christ and from that will flow good things. And apart from that, if you don't have a root in Christ, there's not a speck of fruit you can produce that the Lord would be interested in. The root comes before the fruit. So friend, if you hear anything from Isaiah this morning, hear this good gospel news. God has held you as a surviving remnant with roots that have gone down deep and wide in Christ. Oh, Christian, know your precious union with Christ. Let it filter down into your soul. Grasp it and live it and enjoy it and revel in it and abound with thanksgiving. Your treetop of faith that everybody else sees, it might be small and it might be unimpressive, but I tell you, saint, below the surface of your faith, God is growing down deep supernatural roots to hold you as his own. Thanks be to God. So he's growing good roots. And he tells us that as he's doing that, he's gonna grow and bear Good fruit for all to see. Now, I like talking about the roots, but I actually get nervous talking about the fruit because sometimes we treat this as a division of labor, right? So God has done his part, and now it's time for us to do our part. God did the root thing, and now it's time for the church to do the fruit thing. How many people in this room are fans of fake professional wrestling? Can I get... One guy in the back, the sound guy. Yep, thank you for that. So you and I, not so much now, but in the 90s, pro wrestling was my jam, man. I loved, and I grew up on Hulk Hogan. I grew up on Jake the Snake Roberts and Ric Flair. I mean, that was awesome. And my favorite wrestling was tag team wrestling. So two guys on two guys, right? You show up to the ring and while the ref is looking and you got to play by the rules, you should just have one guy in the ring at a time and they fight each other until they get tired and then they can tap in their friends and those guys jump in and then they can fight each other. And it was just so cool to see all your favorite people just beating the heck out of each other. I mean, I loved that as a kid. And as odd as it is to say, that's how we think about the Christian life if we're not careful. Like when we show up to the ring We cannot defeat sin and death and God jumps in and he does that part, right? He wins this incredible victory. He beats an enemy we couldn't have beat and it's glorious and it's beautiful and our justification is assured and then he taps us and then we jump in and then it's our turn for sanctification, right? Then we start to do big moves in the kingdom and we start to bear fruit for God. Now that's great entertainment but that is terrible, terrible theology, 
And it cheapens everything we could say about fruit to sound like a lame locker room pep talk. If you think that's what we're talking about, then all you will hear me say is, okay, church, God has done his part. He got the roots going. He's brought health to you. He's given you the gift of union. Now get out there and bear some quantifiable kingdom fruit that we can all be proud of, right? And then we say, hurrah, and we run out there. And if we're not careful, we become severed, dry branches trying to produce fruit on our own. And it will never, ever, ever work. And we're still going to try it anyway. So I want to direct our attention in closing to how fruit, worship, community, outreach, lavish generosity, winsome hospitality, preaching Christ and him crucified, even when it embarrasses me, all that good fruit, how that remains good fruit and doesn't become a begrudging to-do list. The question is, how will we take root downward and bear fruit upward? And the answer is in verse 32b. How will this happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Church, how will this happen? The zeal of hosts will do this. He has zeal even if you don't have zeal this morning. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And if the Lord has zeal, and if he's the Lord of hosts, then he has all the resolve and he has all the resources to do what he says he's going to do. Isaiah already told us this was coming. Isaiah already taunted us with this promise about a branch in Isaiah chapter 11, verse one, saying the branch and the fruit is coming. When he writes... Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Jesus grows the roots. Jesus bears the fruit. So church, I'm asking you, today of all days, on our birthday, reorienting ourselves around who we are in Christ and who we are together as a church, would you join me in trusting God in this? If there really is such a thing as an eternal, intimate, joyful union with Christ promised in Isaiah 11.1 and delivered to us in the Gospels, that if God really does promise in our passage to grow roots downward and fruit upward, that the Lord of hosts supplies all zeal and all resources to his people to this end, will not God have his way. What he says, will he not do? Is there any scenario in which the Holy Spirit will go out from the Lord with this resolve and this zeal and then return to the Lord empty-handed without anything from the church to show for it? Will the Lord not have his way in us? May it never be. He will do this. He will do this in this place. He will do this in these saints. He will bear these roots downward and he will bring great and luscious fruit upward because 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we run to you with this new vision of dependence that any good that will come will come from roots that are nourished in Christ, will come from fruit that is born in Christ, will come from this luscious tree as the church join together, glorifying you above all else. Would you do this work in us? Would you bear good fruit that when the world sees it, they can't help but know this is supernatural and beautiful and joyful to be a part of? Do that in our church body now and do it for years to come. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.